Hi, my name is Alex Kovacev. I'm in the technology space. I'm a dad with three kids, and I want Peak 40 performance. Welcome to Peak 40, the podcast that brings you the tips, tactics, and stories for living your best life in midlife. If you're in your mid-30s to 50s, Peak 40 is the place to get actionable advice on the nuances of nutrition, training, recovery, and mindset in midlife. For the full experience and other valuable resources, Register for the Peak 40 weekly newsletter at drbubs.com forward slash peak 40 to enhance your lifestyle and start making midlife your best life. Hey everyone, Dr. Mark Bubbs here. I'm your host for the Peak 40 podcast. Before we get rolling, big shout out to everyone. Massive thank you. We're just over a month into the release of my new book, Peak 40. And we're hitting the bestseller lists on Amazon in five different categories. So it's great to hear it's resonating with people, helping people. So thank you very much and keep those reviews coming in. It's greatly appreciated as well. Today, we're going to talk about a few key concepts when it comes to building the right mindset to be able to achieve your health, your weight loss, and your performance goals. In episode number two, we covered how mindset is actually the key limiting factor to successfully achieving your targets. It's actually the six inches between your ears that is the biggest limiting factor. And in today's discussion, you'll hear clips from first Mr. Eric Barker, author of the best-selling book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, about confidence. So Eric's going to kick off this conversation with a short story about Kasparov versus Deep Blue, this epic chess battle that occurred and how a crisis in confidence played a key role in the outcome. From there, he'll touch on how confidence is either contingent or delusional, and what that means for all of us when we're trying to achieve our goals in midlife. Kasparov versus Deep Blue was really interesting because uh, this was the chess match that took place in 1997, where Kasparov, you know, uh, one of the the greatest chess players ever uh, and the most dominant uh, player in the sport at that point, was uh, playing Deep Blue, uh, the uh, computer created by IBM. And what was interesting was, you know, a fundamental difference between the two of them, other than one being a machine, one being a human, was that uh, Deep Blue had access to every game. Kasparov had ever played every move that Kasparov had ever made. Uh, meanwhile, Kasparov, of course, had no idea what that machine was capable of. So he didn't didn't know it. It hadn't played, uh, you know, uh, any and lots of tournaments. There was no way to study uh, how it behaved or to know, you know, how those processors and hard drives actually what that meant in terms of chess performance. So at one point during the game. Uh, Deep Blue made an utterly inexplicable move. Uh, you know, Kasparov could not figure out why it did what it did. And that got, got under Kasparov's skin. Uh, and it really caused him to start to unravel. Uh, because basically, he he knew the machine wasn't stupid. They had played before. Uh, and it had beat him in, in one game. It had beat him in one, in one game, not the full match, but it had beat him once. He knew it wasn't stupid, and he could not figure out why it made that move. And this led to a crisis of confidence for Kasparov, uh, where in the end, uh, he, he ended up uh, losing because he 
he started playing defensively. He usually had a very aggressive, assertive style, and he started dialing back because he all of a sudden didn't didn't he felt unsure. And what it all turned out to be, which is <laughs> quite ironic, fascinating, and sad, uh, is that. Basically, it was a computer error. Uh, the 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 uh, the because in chess, you know, it's all timed, uh, so you have a limited amount of time. Uh, so the programmers at, at IBM were very concerned that if there was any kind of a computer error in Deep Blue, uh, that if it crashed, it had some kind of a problem. This could completely run the clock down. And 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 cause Deep Blue to lose. So what they did was, uh, if there was any kind of computer error, uh, it it had a failsafe that was basically make a random legal move. That way you can you can push the clock onto Kasparov, and that's what it did. Uh, it made a random legal move, and Kasparov was sitting there going, "Why is it doing this?" And of course, Kasparov's reaction because there's no way to read the face <laughs> of a computer. <laughs> the computer yeah. Yeah, so Kasparov is sitting there going, oh my god, why in the world would you do that? Does it know something I don't know? Can it think, I, I can think 20 moves ahead. Can it think 30 moves ahead, 40 moves ahead? Why would it do that? It must be smarter than I am. So uh, the issue of confidence, you know, is is certainly, you know, a critical one. Uh, it Confidence is powerful, but but it's 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 a lot trickier than than most of us treat it. Confidence is, is a really tough thing to talk about because, frankly, there is no other side. No, nobody writes books about how to be less confident. You know, nobody runs around saying, hey, I, you know, how can I reduce my confidence? Uh, we, we treat confidence like this panacea. Um, and I think that's because we, we don't we, – generally, we don't make the connection between the downsides of, of confidence. We kind of treat them like they're unrelated. Uh, and, and they're not, you know, it's like when you get to the extremes of confidence, you know, the, you get narcissism, you get hubris and any, I'm sure anyone who's dealt with, uh, who's dealt with, you know, the, the, the cream of the crop in terms of athletics has seen athletes who are a little too full of themselves, you know, and, and who are, and the problem with that is, is twofold. Uh, number one, you turn into a jerk and nobody wants to deal with you. Uh, and number two, um, it makes it difficult to learn and improve because if you think you know it all, you you don't, and that's that becomes really really difficult. And and then of course, the higher your confidence goes, uh, the more the farther you have to fall when there's problems. And we we all know, you know, stories are legion, you know, of athletes who were undefeated, and then they face their first loss and they can't handle it, you know, and they they crack under the pressure. Um, it's it's really difficult because. You know there are uh, downside, there are upsides to lower confidence. Now I'm not saying you're depressed and you can't get out of bed, but we all praise humility. We love people who are great at what they do and aren't full of themselves. And one of the fantastic things about you know lower levels of confidence is you know you learn when you're able to say, hey, I don't know everything. My coach has some information that I don't have. Um, you know, and you lose that when you go to the extremes of confidence. The, the, other, the other problem that people face with, uh, with confidence, uh, kind of at the meta level, is that in the end, confidence is always either delusional or contingent. And by, what I mean by that is it's delusional in the sense of you think you're better than you are. 
and and eventually reality is going to catch up with you. <laughs> there is much like uh, much like uh, Wall Street, you know, there's going to be a stock market correction. If your company is overvalued, you know, at some point they're going to figure it out and it's going to and it's going to tumble. Uh, you start to be able to think you can do things you can't. Uh, and that makes it very hard to actually uh, deal with reality. The second problem is that it's contingent. And we all deal with this, where the the problem becomes that, you know, we feel like we have to wake up every morning and slay a dragon in order to feel good about ourselves, that our self-esteem is contingent on our achievement and performance. And, you know, that's fine as long as you can wake up and slay that dragon. But the truth is, we all know some days you don't feel as good. Some days you, you don't do as well. And this puts your self-esteem on a roller coaster where, you know, if you do good, you feel good. You do bad, you feel bad. And it gets hard to to get consistent results. So confidence is more complicated than, than we think to just say, be more confident, um, you know, is filled with pitfalls and, and is not the panacea that we think it is. All right. So how do Eric's insights apply to you and achieving your goals in midlife? Well, there are two sides to this story. One of them is the client that unfortunately isn't very coachable that oftentimes they have information or they know a little bit about nutrition or exercise or lifestyle and they believe certain strategies to be really crucial to their success, to their ability to achieve their goals, when in fact it's actually getting in the way. It's actually part of the problem. And that idea of then perhaps even not realizing but that overconfidence creating that difficulty to then learn and improve, to be coachable. So that's one problem I see in practice. The other problem is that what Eric finished off saying there around contingency, confidence is contingent. If we do feel like we need to slay the dragon every morning to have that self-esteem and that confidence, that's a problem because when it comes to weight loss, when it comes to chronic health conditions, even the most successful people in their careers are not slaying that dragon in their, their own personal life or health life and that actually weighs heavily on them. And it's one of the main reasons that lack of confidence, that clients struggle to, again, trust the process, to stick with the plan, and just stay with the problem long enough to solve it. One of my favorite quotes is from Albert Einstein, who says, you know, I'm not brilliant. I just stay with problems longer than most people. And ultimately, that's what we're trying to achieve here. And in Peak 40, I cover the fact that we don't need the next trendy thing. We don't need to find something new. We need to just take the important pillars, the foundational components, and get better at them, right? We need to upskill ourselves. One of the areas in Peak 40 around mindset that I talk about is mindfulness. In this next clip, you'll hear from Dr. Ina Hazan, a faculty member at Harvard Medical School and a clinical psychologist specializing in health psychology using biofeedback and mindfulness-based approaches. What's interesting here is simply the definition of mindfulness and how things start to change when we add our own words to the experience. Ina will also talk about some powerful emotions that act as major roadblocks when we're talking about building the right mindset and achieving our goals. And those two emotions are guilt and shame and how shame is one of the most intense emotions that humans can feel. Have a listen to this clip, then I'll catch you on the other side. You know, if we circle back to mindfulness, there are 
you know, as you know, a lot of definitions of mindfulness. Mm. You know, what is the definition that you use in practice and that you use in the book? Yeah, um, there are so many definitions of mindfulness, and every I think everybody has their own. Um, the definition that um, I like in particular um, is one by Dr. Christopher Germer, and he defines mindfulness as pre-verbal experience of the present moment with acceptance, or pre-verbal awareness of the present moment with acceptance. Um, the idea here that I think is so incredibly important is that pre-verbal awareness, because once we start putting words to our experience, there come evaluations and interpretations, which may sometimes lead us to unhelpful reactions to the present experience. So being able to just stay with how things are before we interpret them will allow us to make the kind of interpretation that will lead us to most helpful response. Sarah Lazar, um, in her lab at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, has and um, and a, a few of her colleagues have conducted some really fascinating um, studies on what happens in the brain with uh, continued practice of mindfulness meditation. So what um, what they showed is that. After as little as eight weeks of mindfulness practice, now fairly intense, about 30 minutes a day for eight weeks, um, our brains experience both structural and functional changes. So um, until fairly recently, we thought that our brains um, kind of stayed the way they were and we couldn't produce uh, new neurons, like we couldn't increase our uh, brain matter. But we actually, as it turns out, we actually can. Uh, this is a concept of neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really cool. And meditation uh, is one of the ways in which we can make uh, produce these kinds of changes in the brain. So, um, for example, after about eight weeks of mindfulness meditation training, uh, the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that's responsible for learning, memory, and emotion regulation, becomes both larger, so the gray matter in the hippocampus actually increases, so you're growing new neurons, um, and the hippocampus becomes more active. Um, another example is the right insula, uh, which is the part of the uh, brain that's responsible for things like body awareness, uh, empathy, perspective taking, uh, also becomes larger and more active. And um, the part of the brain that's responsible for attention and behavioral control, which is the anterior cingulate cortex, becomes more active as well. And what's also really interesting is that the amygdala, which is the fight or flight center of the brain, right, it's responsible for fear and anxiety, um, actually becomes smaller but it does so in a very selective way. So, you know, your brain has the right side and the left side, Mm -hmm. and you have the right and the left amygdala. Now, the right amygdala is responsible for that immediate, automatic, uh, you know, very intense uh, response to potential danger, right? It's the one that kind of tells you, oh, no, 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 get out of here, right? It's the part of the brain that can often (laughs) (laughs) make you feel like you're out of control, right? Um, And the left amygdala is responsible for more measured response to stress. So what... um, Sarah Lazar and her um, colleague Britta Holzel found uh, in their studies was that um, the right amygdala after eight weeks of mindfulness meditation becomes smaller, but the left amygdala does not, right? So the only part of the amygdala uh, that's uh, being reduced in size and activation is the one that's producing the unhelpful response and the part of the amygdala. Yeah, it, it, 
it, it is so. It is really cool. You write that when a person feels shame, they feel fundamentally broken or not good enough, leading mm-hmm. to thoughts like, I'm a failure, I'm useless, I'm not good enough. And how the more you fight with shame, the more likely you are to lash out at others and people around you. So again, not something I expected to see as much as I did in, in, in practice. And you know, can you talk about some of the origins of shame and the, the differences between things like shame and guilt? Yeah, absolutely. Um, shame is probably one of the most difficult emotions that we as human beings experience. Um, and as, as difficult as it is and as unpleasant as it is and as much as we would like to not have it, uh, it does serve a function. And it's an evolutionary function that has developed you know, over thousands uh, um, of years as human beings were evolving. The evolutionary function of shame is to... Um, prevent us from being cast out of our social group. Mm-hmm. Um, when um, human beings are um, not part of a social group, we don't do so well. You know, in uh, um, you know, back thousands of years ago when our ancestors lived in caves and there was a lot of danger around, um, it was very clear. You know, if you were, were cast, out, cast out of your group, you would get eaten. Yeah, it was, it was not a long life after that, was it? Exactly, exactly. We just did not do well without without people around us. Um, and nowadays, while you know there may not be as much physical danger, uh, but the emotional danger is just as great. If we are cast out of our social group, um, we don't do well. You know, we you know people don't live well by themselves. You know, we don't do well when, when we're lonely. Uh, we develop a lot of physical and emotional problems um, if we feel like we don't belong. Uh, so the evolutionary function of shame is really to prevent that from happening. Uh, you know, if the, the idea is uh, to help us uh, behave in ways that will uh, keep us connected with a group uh, and that will help us uh, stay safe within that group. And interestingly, there's research around the use of HRV and things like shame. Can you share some of the recent research in this area? Yeah, and uh, let me actually go back for a second to address the second part of your question that I missed, uh, which is the difference between shame and guilt, because I think that's also really important. Guilt is another emotion that um, helps us stay within our social group. but the difference is that the guilt points us to mistakes we've made and actions we've taken that may have harmed others. So guilt is very adaptive in that way because it um, helps us take responsibility and make amends for things that we've done wrong. Shame, on the other hand, points us to the parts of us that are fundamentally bad and uh this is what's so hard about shame because it just kind of eats away at you, um, making making you feel that you know you as a person is not good enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Brene Brown, who's written so much um, on on shame, talks about uh, guilt as being I made a mistake and shame as I am a mistake. All right, let's unpack some of Dr. Hazan's insights there from that last clip. Mindfulness is an extremely powerful tool, particularly for conditions like anxiety, low mood, and chronic pain. Mindfulness fundamentally changes the structure and function of your brain. And in a world where there are constant demands on our attention, being able to enhance and upgrade the skill of mindfulness, of maintaining attention, is a tremendously powerful tool to keep you on point and to help you commit to the process without getting distracted. 
Now, when it comes to emotions, why are we talking about guilt and shame? Well, I bring this up in this episode because this fundamental difference between I have failed and I am a failure is so powerful because it does shift the emotion from guilt towards shame. And as Dr. Hazan highlights there, shame is one of the most powerful emotions you can experience. And it does start a downward spiral that moves you away from your goals. And unfortunately, in a very bad emotional place. And this is where, despite many clients' successes in their professional life, they can be struggling with this in their personal and private life. And it has a hugely adverse impact on their health goals, weight loss goals, performance goals. And it's not because you can't follow the diet. It's not because the exercise regime is, is too difficult. It's because we're still trying to process all these emotions. And so being able to use mindfulness as a tool that will start to shift that response, that unconscious response towards negative self-talk, self-blame, guilt, shame, etc., Now, in this last clip, we're going to shift back to Eric Barker and a discussion around a key theme in my book, Peak 40, which is happiness. And this idea that if we start with happiness, something that we see, again, with all the great mental performance coaches now, and that I talked about with Dr. Peter Jensen in episode number two, is that if we can start with happiness, we can then achieve performance and achieve outcome, rather than the old method of first perform get the outcome. And after you get the outcome, that's when you get happiness. We've got to flip that really on its head. So have a listen here to Eric on discussion about gratitude and happiness, and then we'll wrap up this episode. Uh, The work-life balance issue is interesting because it basically didn't exist, you know, uh, a few decades ago. Uh, And they they actually track this uh, because they, they can do searches for how how many times has a word been used uh, in in the newspapers, in major media? And, uh, you know, and I believe more than I think it was 30, 40 years ago, the, the word basically didn't exist. And now, obviously, it's it's bandied about constantly. And that's because of a number of, you know, a number of developments we've seen where, you know, 40 years ago, uh, the, you know, at the, the office closed at 5 p.m. and you went home and you saw your family, you saw your friends, and that's what you did. And now with technology, you know, you're, you're, you got your, you're connected all the time. You know, the, the, your, your email is in your pocket wherever you go. Uh, the, the world is global. So things are running 24 seven. So there's always this debate. You could always be working. And the problem is when you look at the research, uh, ceteris paribus, the more, the, the more work you do, uh, the better the results you'll get. So there is an incentive to work more, to work harder. Uh, and when you combine this, uh, you you get this kind of uh, disastrous perfect storm where work if you work more, you get better results and you are now able to work 24-7. So that just keeps the, the hamster running on the treadmill uh, as opposed to in the past, you know, oh, well, hey, if it's 7 p.m., I can't get that document for you. It's at the office. Well, now the document's in the cloud. You can get it at 2 o'clock in the morning if you need to. So we are always stressed with this idea of should we work because work is always an option. Uh, and the the critical thing there is in the end, uh, you know, the default has switched. It used to be that the world decided for you, hey, you stop at 5 p.m., the doors to the office closed, go home. 
now the the onus is on each and every one of us to draw a line. And that's difficult to do because we know that there's rewards, promotions, raises, there's things out there, uh, there's pressures. Uh, but at some point, you, you need to draw a line, and that needs to be a personal line in terms of, you know, what is good enough for me? Because the way the way things are set up now, um, you know, the world is just, the answer is always going to be more. How, how much do I need to work? More. How much do I need to work now? <laughs> yeah. more. The answer is always going to be more. So if you don't draw that line for yourself, then you're just going to be the hamster running on the on the treadmill. You you need to you need to set a, a idea of th- this is what's good enough for me now. And you can experiment with that, tweak it, but everybody needs to decide that for themselves, or they're going to find themselves, uh, you know, working too hard or not working enough, uh, and 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 that can lead to some serious unhappiness or or burnout. Hundred percent. I mean, definitely something that you see more now in the medical field is things like burnout and people just again unable to draw that line between, uh, you know, work and home life and and really, as you mentioned, kind of you know what is success, really defining it for themselves. And something that we obviously see a lot in the research now is is, is this idea of gratitude and gratitude being so important for not only um, personal health but even success. Can you touch on uh, the importance of gratitude and how it impacts us? Yeah, I mean, gratitude is one of the the things that has been most studied uh, in terms of producing happiness, and and the studies have been replicated uh, again and again. Um, you know, uh, Martin Seligman, uh, one of the most simple, straightforward, easy happiness exercises that somebody can do uh, is simply before you go to bed at night, uh, put a pad and pen uh, next to the uh, you know on your on your bedstand, and um, and just write down three good things that happened to you that day. And this simple exercise has been shown uh, after a few weeks or a couple months, uh, you know, people, people feel better. And that is because, you know, we, we, we think that, oh, geez, there's only a handful of, of things. No, there are tons of things going on in the world, you know, limitless things going on in the world. There are tons of things going on in your life. It's, it's really an issue of attention, you know, where you, you only remember a sliver of what happens to you that day, and those those things that are top of mind, those things that are most memorable uh, in the day, you know, contribute a great deal to your mood and how you feel about your life. So, just taking the time to remember, you know, the good things that happened, uh, you know, goes a long way. Keeping those things top of mind, uh, as opposed to you know the bad things. Uh, you're not you're not changed you know that this isn't necessarily changing what happened but it's just changing where is your attention uh and if your attention is on those good things you know you're going to you're going to feel better but the the other phenomenal thing about gratitude uh is that it's one of the few uh, happiness uh happiness inducers that affects two people uh you know is that uh you know when you when you express gratitude to someone uh, they feel good and you feel good. And one of the most powerful uh, happiness exercises, again, uh, uh, research by Martin Seligman, uh, it was what's called the gratitude visit, where you you write a letter telling somebody how much they mean to you and how all the great things they've done for you. Uh, this can be a friend, a relationship partner, a mentor. Um, and then you make an appointment with them. Don't tell them what you're going to do. Sit them down and read them the letter. And, you know, <laughs> bring tissues because people end up <laughs> exactly. crying. But uh, but this is something that has been shown to make statistical uh, statistically significant increases in happiness for months. 
uh, after it happens, because we all think about the people who have done good things for us. And occasionally we, we, we say thank you. Uh, but rarely, I mean, you can, you know, it's, I think we can all agree on this. Rarely does anyone take the time to really spell out, sit you down and make a moment out of it. Uh, and again, that's something that can increase happiness levels for, for months. Gratitude is incredibly powerful and we, we, we generally don't do it enough. Let's unpack some of Eric's insights. There's some really fundamental insights here. The first is that yeah, in previous generations, the world decided for you when to stop working. And now that just isn't the case. I mean, you need to set boundaries. You need to draw the line because you can be working 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year because everything is now accessible. And the rewards, the promotion, the raises, all these things are associated with doing more work, with putting in more time. But the caveat here is that up to a certain point. Once you reach that tipping point, you're going to burn out. Your mindset's going to be impacted. You're going to be unhappy. Negative self-talk is going to increase. There's going to be increased likelihood for guilt, potentially for shame. And so being aware is the first step and setting those boundaries because ultimately, as Eric alludes to here, where your attention goes, your energy does flow. And so if you're focusing on the negative things, the stressful things, that's where your energy goes and that's where your mindset goes. So what's the action item this week? The exercise that Eric outlines around at the end of the day or the start of the day, if you prefer, you write down three things that went well for you that day, that you enjoyed that day. And you need to write them down. It's not enough to think about them. Get a little notebook out right before bed, first thing in the morning, write three positive things down. Because remember, mindset's a trainable skill. Optimism is a trainable skill. And it is the key skill to be able to set the foundation for your success with your nutrition, your exercise, and to really ultimately just be the best you. Because that's basically what Peak 40 is about. Laying the foundation so that you can thrive in all aspects of your life. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share, download, and subscribe. It's a big help to the show. And just a reminder, we do have our Peak 40 Nutrition Coaching course on at the moment. We've got a small group for the summer. So if you'd like to jump into that 12-week course, head over to drbubs.com forward slash peak 40, and you can use the promo code peak 40 to save $100 off that course. Fantastic. Any questions, hit me up at Dr. Bubs on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Use the hashtag peak 40, and we'll see you next week.